Bojo Anin. Hi, I'm Serene Fox, and this is Into the Anthropocene, the podcast where we talk to smart and interesting people tackling one of the most urgent issues of our time, our impact on the planet. We'd like to acknowledge that we're recording this podcast on the land of the Mississaugas of New Credit and the traditional territories of the Wendat, Anishinaabe, and Haudenosaunee nations. Last episode, we went into the city. 80% of Canadians live in cities and uh, 50% of our emissions that, cli- that, that cause climate change, in our Canadian emissions, originate in cities. Now we're zeroing in on all the living things in the Anthropocene, us humans and the millions of plant and animal species we share the planet with, because we're all here together on the brink. Joining us today, Dr. Winnie Kuru, wildlife biologist, senior technical advisor at the Elephant Protection Initiative in Kenya, and a key organizer of the historic 2016 Ivory Tusk Burn in Nairobi National Park. There's not a single piece of ivory you're going to find anywhere in the world that has come from a live elephant. Elephant ivory is never harvested from live elephants. Elizabeth Colbert, New Yorker staff writer and the author of the Pulitzer Prize winning book, The Sixth Extinction. The ways we're changing the, the planet and the rate at which we're changing the planet are, are have no precedent, you know, in the hit in the you know four billion year history of the planet, probably. And poet and professor Adam Dickinson, who discovered the Anthropocene floating around in his own body. Anthropogenic pollution is uh, not only rewriting our climate, uh, but also our metabolism. So the very the, the effects of bodily processes. First up, Dr. Winnie Kuru on African elephants, incredible creatures that are truly on the brink. Roughly 20,000 elephants are killed each year, mostly for the illegal ivory trade. If this trend continues, they will be wiped out within the next decade, and with them comes a cascade of other losses. Now, elephants are the gardeners of Eden. They are nature's gardeners. They plant seeds. There are many plants that will not germinate unless they've been through an elephant's gut. They distribute seeds because they walk for large, through large, large areas. Elephants can cover up to 100 kilometers just looking for water and even more during droughts. By opening up the canopy, they make it possible for the sun to reach the undergrowth. And so the smaller antelopes, the smaller grazers of different species, follow elephants because they know that as elephants thin the bushes, very nice new green growth will come through and they can thrive on it. Other animals depend on them to find water because elephants are completely clued in on where water sources are. The world would just be a poorer place without elephants. What makes elephants such unique animals? One of the most spectacular things about elephants is their female-led family, where the matriarchs basically determine what they do, where they go, who mates with who, um, who basically gets looked after by who. They just run the show. And I, I think that that is something humans should learn from elephants and their ability to communicate has also made it 
very possible for them to survive adversity. So I can talk for days about the elephant society and how they in many ways show such benefit from longevity. They can't survive the poacher's bullet. They cannot survive an insatiable desire for, you know, ivory artifacts. They cannot survive uh, the advancement in technology that the poacher is in the bush with a mobile phone, is able to call in reinforcements. They cannot survive the advent of night vision equipment. They cannot survive human greed where logging companies go in, set up roads in places where there should never have been a road, and that's what kept elephants safe, and now make trucks that can be used by poachers. They cannot survive human greed. They were kitted by nature to survive everything, but I think nature just did not reckon with how greedy humans can be. On April 30th, 2016, 105 tons of elephant ivory and over a ton of rhino horn were set ablaze in Nairobi National Park for the world to see. This was an extraordinary day. Kenya signaled to the world that there is no value in ivory. But setting up a massive test burn is no small task. So in 2015, I was recruited by Stop Ivory to lead on a project to inventory Kenya's ivory and rhino horn stocks. It took us about 65 days to complete the total inventory. The president of Kenya made an announcement in February 2016 that uh, to demonstrate Kenya's zero tolerance to the illegal ivory trade, he was going to order a complete ban all of Kenya's ivory and rhino horn stocks. We needed to figure out how do you get all this ivory to Nairobi with all the security and logistical concerns, the cost, the number of personnel needed, um, the security issues. How do you actually ban an estimated 100,000 kilos of ivory when everybody knows that ivory doesn't burn? The answer to that question came in the form of Robin Hollister. He's a Hollywood location scout and special effects expert. Robin suggested an underground pipe system of kerosene and diesel. The plan was for these pipes to pump fuel into the middle of the tusk piles. This would ensure a complete burn. But April is Kenya's rainy season, and it rained for the entire month leading up to the tusk burn. Plenty of camera crews and photographers were there to document the burn, but they didn't see all the glitches leading up to it, or all the improvising that went into ensuring its success. We prayed and waited and, and hoped that everything was going to be fine. I had images of myself all beautifully dressed, going up to say hello to the president and and cutting and ushering him to the piles, but no, I was covered in mud from head to toe, um, signaling to, to Robin and saying, here we go now. And there the president walked up, went, and he lit the kind of largest pile, which was right in the middle, and there was smoke billowing, and Robin was looking at me like, of you. <laughs> Thankfully, we had 
piled loads of um, skins and hides and sandalwood in the piles. So there was enough wood and stuff to get lots of smoke billowing. And the plan was, once all the pyres were lit, we would then pump, move everybody back and pump huge amounts of fuel so we would have this spectacular fire going. We stayed on up to about midnight, and literally on the stroke of midnight, we noticed that there were lions that had been attracted by the smell of the skins and hides, and they were standing at a distance from the flames, and we could just make out the silhouettes of the lions. And there we were sitting, um, watching this spectacle, and there were lions watching with us. And the many moments in that whole experience that were really profound and beautiful, but that one moment stays with me. It was something spectacular, even from the wild. And I was so proud to be associated with it. After all of the camera crews had gone home, Winnie and her team were left with the task of ensuring the complete and total destruction of the tusk piles. We're going to sign off this ban when we made sure that every single task was destroyed to the extent that it would not be useful for carving or any other of the stuff that people do with ivory. So we stayed on for another six, seven days, just making sure that everything was destroyed. And the more we stayed, the more ominous and horrible the scene became. It was bits of black and ash and the smell of death and it was very much like attending the funeral of of a friend and being there for seven days. It was nasty. And you could see half burnt out tasks and some of them you could just make out the uh, markings on them and you'd think, whoa, this was a Namboseli elephant. Maybe it's an elephant that I knew. Um, this is a tiny little task. I wonder why this one had to die so young. There were days you'd go home at night and you felt weepy and sick. It was very emotional and you kind of needed to be around people that really got it. And somehow people didn't see what that effect, the effect that that had on us. We just were workers there in, in rubber boots and covered in mud and, and sometimes maybe we, we became invisible but later when we watched the footage from all the photographers then we realized no actually we were not invisible we were there all the time how does when you look back on that experience now i look back and i think uh, i'm very humbled and privileged for having had such a principal role in this amazing experience and that it provoked great emotion in a lot of people. But it was also interesting that it provoked some serious negative backlash. There were countries that felt that Kenya was wasteful, Kenya didn't realize that they were poor, Kenya was burning money, Kenya was being irresponsible as an African country. That came through as well. And I just love our president's response because he said, look, we must show the criminal gangs around the world that ivory has no value, uh, that we want our elephants alive. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks, but Kenya is ready and willing to bite the bullet and make this statement around the world. Nobody's going to kill elephants for ivory if there's nowhere to sell it. So we think that there's a whole global platform.
platform that was opened up because of this uh, very provoking uh, gesture by Kenya. Anthropocene artists Jennifer Bachwell, Edward Bertinsky, and Nicholas Deponsier photographed and filmed the test burn for the Anthropocene exhibition and documentary film. We know Nick, Jennifer, and Ed are admirers of Winnie's work. What does she think of their work? How does she feel when she looks at the photographs and film of the Tusk Burn? First of all, just being able to live the experience again when I'm not tired, <laughs> being able to look at the images while sipping a cup of tea is so much nicer. So I am eternally grateful that people like Ed were there to capture the images because otherwise, uh, the level of involvement and exhaustion was that I think Robin and I completely missed the spectacular nature of what we had done. These images captured not just the the landscape, but the emotion as well, because there was just a way in which they caught the smoke and the light and the fires that made it look so alive. And I think that going forward, it's going to be impossible to concentrate 100,000 kilos of ivory in our lifetime. We're never going to have another ivory band. There's just no elephants to bring together that kind of ivory. And I hope that this will get people starting to think of what they have done to the earth. And even if in a small way, it triggers them to stop and think and just contemplate the human footprint, I think that Ed, Jennifer, and everyone that was involved in capturing those images will have um, will have done their service to humanity. What role can we play in the fight to save the elephants? The other role that everybody in the world has is to disseminate correct information about elephants, about conservation, about Africa, and about Africans. Today we have a Kenya Wildlife Service with 4,000 rangers that are out there working 24 hours with very little equipment. All that keeps them going is passion. I think that the storytellers, the photographers, the cinema, the movie makers must tell this narrative. They must get away from the narrative that says Africa needs saving from itself. And there are people, there are heroes that are out here saving Africa from itself. But there are Africans who continue every day to wake up in the morning and go out and look after wildlife. That story needs to be told. There are certainly valid conversations we can have about humans hunting sustainably for survival and for cultural preservation. But the reality is elephants are not hunted for their meat. They're killed for decoration. There is not a single piece of ivory you're going to find anywhere in the world that has come from a live elephant. All the ivory that you see anywhere, whether it's on an earring or a carving, or that elephant is dead. And people need to know that. And elephants don't need to die for us to look beautiful. That was Dr. Winnie Kuru. If you're interested in learning more about her work, check out the podcast episode description for a link with more information.
By burning through coal and oil deposits, humans are putting carbon back into the air. In the process, we are running geologic history not only in reverse, but at warp speed. This is a quote from Elizabeth Colbert from her Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Sixth Extinction. Elizabeth has written about the partisan divide in American politics when it comes to climate change and the spread of deliberate misinformation campaigns. Has anything changed since she started writing about this topic in the early 2000s? The world is so obviously becoming warmer and we're seeing so many of the effects of climate change that the denialist camp is finding it harder and harder to deny that that is happening, but they still find ways to try to deny or try to sow confusion about what the causality is. And the causality is, you know, extremely clear. It's rising greenhouse gas levels in the atmosphere, which are, you know, extremely well documented. Now, the science of climate change is not very complicated. Um, You know, it's been understood since the 1850s that carbon dioxide is what we'd call a greenhouse gas, which means simply means uh, it basically traps heat uh, near the surface of the earth, that that's crucial to life on planet earth. If you burn fossil fuels, you're putting more CO2 into the air, you will be raising the temperature of the earth. A lot of people who are busy leading their lives and would prefer not to believe Uh, that what they're doing, you know, just when they drive around in their cars and turn on their lights is contributing to a potential ecological catastrophe. Uh, I think that people are very susceptible to any of this misinformation because it actually feeds into what they'd like to believe. And I think that's the real danger here. Elizabeth's research for the book took her all over the world, where she discovered human activity is not only affecting our day-to-day lives, It holds the fate of millions of species across this planet. What is the sixth extinction, and how are we connected to it? The sixth extinction is being caused by the ways that we are changing the world on a geological scale, so on a global scale and on a permanent scale. Those are the factors behind the sixth extinction, and also the factors that led people to propose that we're in the Anthropocene, and then, you know, sort of conversely, one of the signs of the Anthropocene will be that this extinction event. If you look back in the fossil record, you see these moments in time, you know, moments sort of defined geologically speaking, where the biodiversity of life on the planet plunges for one reason or another. You know, the fifth extinction is the extinction that did in the dinosaurs, and that was um, probably caused by an asteroid impact. So that was 66 million years ago. And now we do not have the fossil record of the present, obviously, but when we look at various measures of extinction rates, we find they're very, very high. And so uh, scientists have, have posited or proposed that we are entering um, a sixth mass extinction. And you know, many millions of years from now, when we look at the fossil record of today, we will see that the diversity of life once again plummeted. There's no other creature that went out there and dug up fossil fuels, you know, and combusted them and changed the atmosphere at this incredibly rapid rate. The ways we're changing the planet and the rate at which we're changing the planet are, are have no precedent, you know, in the hit in the, you know, four billion year history of, of the planet, probably. In the sixth extinction, Elizabeth writes, today amphibians enjoy the dubious distinction of being the world's most endangered class of animals. She tells us the story of Tuffy, 
a Panamanian tree frog. So Tuffy、um, was a frog known as a rabs, fringe-limbed tree frog. He、um, is. This is a species that was only discovered about twelve or thirteen years ago.、Um, while scientists were taking a lot of amphibians out of the rainforest in central Panama, where there was a fungal disease that was rapidly spreading through the forest, and they realized that. Uh, some whole species might be wiped out, so they were trying to collect、uh, animals that they could take into captivity and raise and preserve those species they hoped. And in that process, this new species, a quite fascinating species、uh, of tree frog, that、uh, where the mother frog laid her eggs in a tree hole, so a hole in a tree that gets filled with water in the rainforest, and then the father of Would tend to the tadpoles and actually,、um, literally allow them to eat the skin off their off his back. That was how they survived the tadpole stage. Three specimens were taken into captivity. One of whom was became known as Tuffy. He went to the Atlanta Botanical Gardens、uh, and lived a very long life、um, and was much beloved. But none of these these frogs did not reproduce.、Um, it turned out that the Two specimens in 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 the U.S. Were, were, were both males. That was a big event. It got a lot of news coverage when Tuffy died a couple years ago because he was the last known member of this species. Look, it's an obvious tragedy when you're the last, you know, member of your tribe, you're the last speaker of a language, you're the last、uh, representative of your species. I think you know everybody recognizes that that has a a truly tragic element to it. Now, you know. The sad part about it is that we, you know, wait until there's no hope before we get interested in these stories. We really have to get interested long, long before that if we're going to make a difference. Elizabeth writes that extinction among many other species groups are approaching amphibian levels. One of those groups is coral. An estimated one third of all reef-building coral are careening towards extinction. Coral reefs are some of the most biodiverse habitats on the planet, and they are a sight to behold. Elizabeth describes a coral spawning event at the Great Barrier Reef. Many species of corals are, are hermaphroditic, which means that they produce both eggs and sperm, and、uh, basically once a year, and it's tied to the moon. You get this event called a mass spawning, where You know, gazillions. I, I, it's hard for me to put a figure on it. Of, of, of coral release these packages, little packets of eggs and sperm simultaneously, so that they can, you know, sort of mix it up genetically. You know, it makes a lot of sense from an evolutionary perspective. These these little packages, they look a little bit like beads before they burst open.、Uh, and so, what you get is these beads rising to the surface of the water. I think in the book I describe it as like a snowstorm in reverse. It's an amazing spectacle, and you're you're underwater, so obviously, it's completely silent and it's choreographed, right? Every everyone, every all the corals are doing it at the same time. In fact, I was in the water when it started, when the event started, and suddenly,、uh, you know, billions of corals started、uh, to release these these little little pink beads.、Um, You watch them rise. It, it, they look like you know tiny little bubbles. So it's like it's sort of like being in this in this reverse underwater blizzard. Very very beautiful and and quiet and sort of romantic even. 
What exactly is coral reef? And why is it so important to keep it healthy? The reef is, you know, basically 1,500 miles of huge deposits of calcium carbonate that have been produced by these tiny little animals that are corals uh, over many thousands of years. And then they sort of build up and build up and build up and, and lots and lots and lots of different kinds of creatures find their home in a coral reef. So when you're on a reef, a healthy reef, a functioning reef, you know, you're seeing an amazing array of, of fish and crustaceans and octopuses and sharks, um, just turtles, everything congregates around the reef. It's sort of like a bazaar where every everyone comes to, you know, feed and, and be fed and and sort of exchange nutrients, and it's, so it's an amazingly, uh, it's amazingly full of life. Um, it, it really, the most extraordinary sight I think that that a person can see. The Great Barrier Reef is the largest, you know, reef complex on the planet. Uh, reefs are in trouble for many, many reasons, and one of the big reasons is because water temperatures are rising, and corals uh, don't don't like that when the water gets too warm. They like warm water, but they don't like it when it gets too warm. And in, in many cases, it's, it's called bleaching. Basically, they end up dead. So the reef, the Great Barrier Reef, has lost a lot of what, what scientists refer to as its coral cover. You know, all reefs are, are, are really in trouble. And there's a really serious question about, you know, whether 30, 40, 50 years from now, there will be any functioning uh, reefs left. And what is lost when the reef is gone? You know, you're losing one solution to the to the question of how to how to survive on planet Earth. An answer that you know has been worked out over you know, many many millions of years, and so it's sort of, sort of like a language. Once again, you could be losing a whole family of languages, or you could be lo- losing a language that has some close relatives. But I think it's it's useful to think of it to think of species, you know, as as, 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 as solutions to how to live, and humans are just one solution, um, and there are many, many others, and that's the history of life on Earth, and we are really, you know, running through that really, really rapidly. And what does Elizabeth think that we everyday citizens of this planet need to know about the Anthropocene? I think the Anthropocene is, is, is a good perspective changing concept and our perspective on what we're doing which life seems really ordinary you know living in a house and you know turning on the ac and driving our kids around and all that it seems oh this is just ordinary um but when you flip it around and and look at what humans are doing from the perspective of of the planet and geological history you realize that it's extraordinary we live in an extraordinary moment and i think that that change of perspective helps people understand how seriously humans are impacting the planet and I hope co- will cause them to reflect on you know, what we want our legacy to be. For more information on Elizabeth's book, The Sixth Extinction, and her recent work, check out the link in the podcast episode description. Now, the science of the Anthropocene tells us that humans are leaving behind visible markers in the Earth's rock record. But what kinds of markers are turning up in our own bodies? We close this episode with poet and Brock University professor Adam Dickinson. For his latest book of poetry, Anatomic, Adam Got Personal. Very personal.
The purpose of this project really was to look at the way that the outside, the environment, writes the insides of our bodies in necessary ways, in terms of the effects that microbes have on our bodies. We, we rely on microbes to keep us alive in so many ways. So I devised a project whereby I would uh, decided to test myself for chemicals and microbes and write in a sense a kind of chemical slash microbial autobiography where I explored the stories of some of these chemicals and microbes. How did they get into me? Where are they from? What kinds of biological properties and effects do they have? What are their industrial histories? What are their evolutionary histories? How might I see the effects of industry, agriculture, and military history inside my body? And what does this mean to discover these narratives there? So I, I performed these tests on myself. This took a long time to figure out how to do. I had to consult scientists. I had to uh, consult laboratories. I had to send blood samples and urine samples and stool samples across borders. Uh, which were treated as biohazards and presented me with all kinds of interesting and strange problems that I'd never dealt with before as an artist. I did have to fill 76 vials of blood for the project. I needed a substantial amount of blood to send off to these laboratories, which is why uh, I needed so many small tubes of blood. Uh, it took me, I would say, about seven years to do this project. As Adam found out, as the Anthropocene is rewriting our climate, it is also rewriting our bodies. He took this and turned it into poetry. Anthropogenic pollution is uh, not only rewriting our climate, uh, but also our metabolism. So the, very, the, the effects of bodily processes, you know. We wear the energy systems that power our society uh, in the form of chemicals in our flesh uh, and in the hormonal messages of the endocrine system. We also house shifting communities of microbes that reflect our dependence on processed food, on industrialized food production. And so if we're going to address this extraordinary writing that is taking place in the Anthropocene, poetry offers us a means of thinking about expanded literary practices already. as a, It's a form of writing that lives at its own limits. And so I felt that poetry was, was a highly appropriate means with which to investigate these issues. When Adam read his test results, he found himself thinking about how different people are exposed to drastically different levels of toxins. I was surprised and shocked by the test results, partly because I have lived, it seems to me, from my perspective, a relatively unremarkable life when it comes to obvious exposure patterns or obvious history of exposure. The Anthropocene or the term Anthropocene doesn't account for the fact that uh, a lot of people uh, are not <laughs> responsible for polluting the earth in the way that it's become polluted. That uh, the, the term effaces some of the important distinctions when it comes to race and class, for example. And so I found mercury in my blood. It, it made me think about my relationship, my responsibility as a, as a privileged settler in southern Ontario. I mean, I recognize that, uh, that, I'm not, that I'm not contaminated in the same way, but nonetheless, this was, here, here was something inside me that uh, here was mercury in there. It made me think about mercury in my community, in my country, uh, and the, kinds of the kind of damage that it has done to, uh, to people. I'm thinking in particular of uh, Grassy Narrows in northwestern Ontario and the kind of mercury contamination that has been an ongoing problem there for 50 years or more. And clearly this is an example of, of um, racism when it comes to um, 
thinking through environmental issues in relation to First Nations indigenous communities. Phthalates are a family of industrial chemicals typically found in plastic products. They are just one of the acids Adam found in his test results. It turns out phthalates are virtually unavoidable. I tend to avoid products that, that I associate with, with phthalates and, uh, and uh, plastics in that way. So I had thought that perhaps I would have relatively low levels of phthalates. I was completely wrong. I have moderate to high levels of some phthalates uh, in many cases, and this shocked me. They're also uh, ubiquitous. They're in all kinds of personal care products. Uh, they're used as uh, in scents. They're used in lotions. So uh, the, the thing about phthalates as well that I found quite interesting is that we metabolize them really quickly. So they kind of threw us in about 24 hours. I had thought that because I had consciously been trying to avoid soft plastics and things over the years that I might have low levels of phthalates because we clear, clear them out pretty quickly. But I, had, I have all kinds of phthalates in me, which suggests really that I'm bathing in them. And we all are. They're just around us. PCBs, or polychlorinated biphenyl, are a type of persistent organic pollutant. This is a toxic compound that remains in the atmosphere and environment for a very long time. PCBs are most commonly associated with the American corporation Monsanto. Monsanto is the source of 99% of the PCBs used by U.S. industry. Let's listen as Adam reads one of his poems from Anatomic. This piece is the introductory section of a poem about PCBs called Lipids. I have found one of the most widely distributed environmental contaminants on the planet in my body, polychlorinated biphenyls, PCBs. Principally manufactured by Monsanto for industrial and commercial applications, these lipophilic pollutants collect like comment sections in the fat of creatures everywhere. If we test for them, we will find them. PCBs constitute a form of writing in the Anthropocene, a recursive script where industrial innovations find their way back into the metabolic messaging systems of the biological bodies that have created them. As edits, as subtle revisions to the hormonal cascades that precipitate bodily morphologies and affective experiences of the world, PCBs are messages in the fat of our humanity. What Adam found most surprising was how much anxiety the project stirred up within him. I had thought at first, perhaps naively so, that I could bracket myself, my body, my emotional concerns as I proceeded to sort of treat myself as a specimen. What's inside me? Let's, let's write this book about what I find inside me and I'll just consider myself as a kind of specimen. I didn't really think about the kind of emotional toll that this would take. I became... I started to uh, obsess, really, uh, about chemicals in my body and the kinds of things they were doing to me and the kinds of, uh, of uh, problems that I might, uh, kinds of diseases or illnesses I might be predisposing myself to because of the chemicals that I found. It was shocking to learn what was inside me, to learn how the Anthropocene has entered me in effect, uh, in, in effect and, um, you know, how there was very little I could do about that. Uh, and uh, this provoked a great deal of anxiety for me. Did Adam regret embarking on the project at any point? Oh, I definitely did at moments regret doing the project. I definitely did. Uh, and I know certainly uh, my family did. My wife did. <laughs> um, you know, I, uh, this, uh, this was very challenging for me. It, uh, it caused me a lot of anxiety and depression at different points, and I think I was very difficult to live with as a result of this. 
Um, yes, I did. I did regret it. I mean, I, I am and have been and remain interested intellectually in all of these ideas. Uh, but I guess I wasn't necessarily prepared for the way in which my emotion life, my mental health life would be affected by these things. How does Adam live his day-to-day life now? This book has changed my life in many ways. Writing this book, working on it, doing the research for it has really changed my life. It's changed how I think about my body. It's changed how I think about my environment. It's changed how I think about my community. And um, I have changed certain aspects of what I do in terms of my diet. And as much as I, I think that I and try to eat a healthy diet, I still bear the signature of the Anthropocene in that way. What messages are these toxins, chemicals, and pollutants writing into our systems? Our fat, our organs, our blood. What does Adam hope his work will reveal about the invisible forces of chemical pollution? The kinds of decisions that we make about the energy systems that we want to surround ourselves with, that those energy systems will inevitably make their way into our bodies. We are not discrete, impermeable membranes separated from our environment. The kinds of choices and decisions we make about the materials that we want to use, burn, utilize, um, in the context of, of industry, and energy, those end up entering us. A work like this, I'm hoping, will contribute to a conversation about um, the ethics of this, about whether we want to live in a world in which we can find the signatures of these multinational companies inside us. In effect, it's their proprietary private property inside our bodies. In the the case of PCBs, for example, they're in me, they're in us. Uh, Are we okay with this? I mean, I think that there's a there's a significant larger larger conversation to be had when it comes to this, and I'm hoping that this book will will contribute to that discussion. It may be too late for Tuffy the tree frog, but is it too late to override the chemicals and toxins that have found their way into our own bodies? Is it too late to take action to prevent coral bleaching? The delicate balance of the planet's numerous ecosystems and the fate of all these species rests with us. Next time on Into the Anthropocene, Into the Woods, British Columbia's old growth forests. When humans cut down these ancient ecosystems, what disappears along with them? We talk to Ken Wu of the Ancient Forest Alliance. The biggest best trees are now largely gone. We're working to conserve and protect the last of the ancient giants. And Harley Rustad, author of the new book on Canada's second largest Douglas fir tree, Big Lonely Doug. You know, Big Lonely Doug, they estimate, is about a thousand years old. Um, A lot of the, the big trees that they're trying to save, a lot of the really valuable big trees that the loggers are also in turn trying to cut, are 500, 600 years old. The problem is that how are they going to come back? If we're cutting them down at such a rate, we are never going to be able to see these trees again. And Joe Martin, cloquiate carver and longtime activist. And of course, you know, the red cedar, it was a, a very important uh, part. It is still a very important part of our culture. And we need to continue to protect them. And, and so today, you know, there's still clear cutting going on. And then people are still targeting all the best red cedars. And in my opinion, they are ripping off the future generations of all of us that live here, all of us that live here. Into the Anthropocene, Our Impact on Earth was produced by the Art Gallery of Ontario in Toronto to go along with the exhibition Anthropocene, 
featuring the works of Edward Brutinsky, Jennifer Batchwal, and Nicholas de Poncier. The exhibition is on at the Art Gallery of Ontario and the National Gallery of Canada from the end of September 2018 until early 2019. For more information, visit our website at www.ago.ca.